Well, praise God. This morning, uh, what I wanted to minister on you is uh, the name of the message. I've called it "A Man After God's Own Heart." It's a brief look into the character of David. And the reason that I, I called it a brief look is I was recognizing as I was going through this is that we could spend weeks going through David's life. I mean, he's one, of the, he's one of the few characters in the Bible that we get to see the entirety of his life is documented and recorded all the way from when he was a young boy to his death as the king. And the, pretty much the entirety of his life is recorded. And what is also super unique to David is that not only do we get to see his life recorded from the outside looking in, as the prophets and the, the, the people who wrote uh, uh, Kings and Chronicles recorded it, but we also get to see what was on his mind because most of the Psalms, as you guys all know, were written by David. And there's people that are much smarter than me that have gone in there and figured out which Psalm goes with which part of his life. And you can see what was on his heart, what was on his mind as he was going through all these things. Has this been shut off, Ali? Do you know? Is it off? Yeah? Okay. Perfect. Um, so we get to see his thoughts, what he was going through, how he actually felt as he's going through all these things. So today, like I said, we, since we have so much of his life, this could really be, you could spend just months of Sundays going through David's life. But today I really want to just look at a few points in his life, some, some bullet points on the character of David. Because David we all know, you've all heard that he was referred to as a man after God's own heart. And this is something we'll find that this is actually something God said about him. When God says you're a man after his heart, I'm going to know we can trust what the Bible says there. God said that, not David. David didn't say I'm a man after God's heart. God said he was. But the thing is, as we look at that, we hear these great things about him and we're like, man, David must have been just, he was a super saint. He was, he must have been awesome when he walked, the halo flew across his head, probably like just glowed around him. People, he just walked by him, people would faint and get healed. He must have been an awesome man. But then you look, as you read through the Bible, we recognize that he's just like you and I. David was no different than anybody here in this room. He had great strengths. He had great victories. But he also had many flaws and many failures. And he didn't always do the right thing. Matter of fact, if you spend some time in his life, he spent a lot of time doing the wrong thing. And when David messed up, he did it good. <laughs> but he always turned back to God. And see, that's the key. The, probably the greatest consistency that we can see in, in David's life is that no matter what happened, he always turned back towards the Lord. He never gave up. He never stayed down. And I think that's one of the things that we can model after ourselves. One, we can take encouragement from the fact that this great man of the Bible, someone that God said was a man after his, God's own heart, wasn't perfect. He wasn't outside of the realm of who we are. That means that we can live in the same kind of, of thought as this. We can be considered a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart. And we're not disqualified just because we've made a few mistakes. Because we're not perfect. And we know if we just turn back towards God, He's always going to turn towards us. So let's go ahead and get started. And we'll take a look at here towards the beginning of His life. And there's going to be a lot of reading going on with the Scripture. Sorry, everything's so small. I'll read it out loud and you have to bear with me. <laughs> 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 13 says, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. 
But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees, but looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy, now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. See, what had started this whole thing was that Saul, who was the king of, of Israel at the time, was just not cutting it. He was anointed. He was made king. And if you look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. Go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, and I, will have, I have provided myself a king among his sons. So Samuel heads out to Jesse and starts, he says, Hey, I need to speak to your sons. So Jesse figures that if the prophet's coming to anoint someone king, he must want you know, my, my good sons, the big ones, the, the grown ones. And he sends his first son in front of him. And the Bible says that uh, he must have been a, a good, strong-looking guy because the Lord says, do not look on his appearance or in the height of his stature because I have rejected him. So he's tall, he's handsome, he's rugged, he's got one of those, those jaws that you see in the movies. Basically, he looked a little like me. And... Uh, <laughs> No? <laughs> so he, he, he came and, and the Bible says, no, the Lord rejects him. Don't look at his appearance. I look at the inside of his heart. So then he begins passing his sons before him. And the next son, almost as good looking as the first, comes and stands before him. And no, that's not him. That's not him. Seven sons come before the Lord. And he says, none of these are, are him. Is, is, are, am I missing something? Because the Lord clearly told me that one of your sons was to be king, and you've just passed all your sons before me, and ain't one of them it. You see, in, in Samuel, his mistake was is the same mistake that happened kind of with Saul. He sees these good, handsome-looking men. Surely these strong men are the ones that's going to lead Israel. But he forgot his mistake with Saul, because this is what was, was said about Saul in 1 Samuel 9.2. It says, And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. You know, they were looking for someone that could look good as the king. And as we all know, if you're familiar with, with Saul, that doesn't work out too well for Israel. Saul makes some huge mistakes. And, and Saul's problem was he never turned back towards God. So God says, I'm not looking at the outward man. I don't care what he looks like on the outside, which I'm really like, thank God, because I wouldn't be up here if that was the case. But he says, I'm, God knows more about you than what you look like. You can look perfect on the outside, look like you're doing the right things, but on the inside, be all messed up. And then David, the funny thing about David is he's considered so insignificant by his family, by his father, by his brothers, that he's not even called in when he says, I'm looking for one of your sons considered so insignificant that he's not even called in at all. 
And it's funny because there's many people in the kingdom of heaven that are considered insignificant, but they really have great calls of God on their life. So David's probably 10 or 13 years old, right? 10 to 13 years old right now. He's a young kid. The Bible says that, that he's ruddy. When, it's, when he says when he was ruddy, that's the same uh, Hebrew word used for, for um, oh, Esau when they referred to him as red. His nickname was, was Edom, I think, and it meant red. Same word. So many people think that he, he was a redhead. Or it might even mean that uh, you probably know this in Spanish when you're referring to, to someone's hair, you're actually referring to their whole skin tone and their hair and all that stuff. Probably just a light, fair-skinned kid. He's not like the rest of the Israelites. He looks different. You know, he's still handsome. I guess that's good. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he's got blue eyes. He's handsome. He's, he's, he's just not the same as the others. He's not a, he's not a man's man. But he's just a little light, light fair skin. They... His friends might have called him white girl or something. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> praise God. <laughs> yeah, but he's not what anybody expected to be the king of Israel. But then, Samuel says this is him, and he pulls him forward and he anoints him with oil. And the anointing of oil is, was symbolic. The biblical imagery there is, is, being, is the Holy Spirit coming upon you and being endowed with power. So David, at this moment, is, made, is anointed as the king of Israel. And the funny thing is, that you'll notice is that he actually doesn't become king of all Israel for 33 more years. I mean, can you imagine being a 10 or 13 year old kid and being called in? Like, hey, you're going to be king. And you're like, yes. No more sheep. No more out And then they just send you right back out. <laughs> you're going to have to wait a bit, bud. Keep doing the things you were doing. But this is the start of his life. As he gets called out, not who you would expect to be, and called into service by God. He's anointed. And the next point, part in his life I want to see is, look at is, when now he's about 15 or 17 years old, uh, 15 to 17 years old. And uh, in 1 Samuel 17, 32 through 37, it says, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear... And took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him, and he delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his head and struck him and called him. Can you imagine that? This little kid grabbing a bear by the head and beating him down. It says, your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So you guys probably are recognizing the start of this story. This is David and Goliath. Probably the most famous David story that anybody ever knows. And this Philistine that's, that's gathered with the armies to stand against Saul and the men of Israel, you've got to picture this. They're standing on both sides of this. There's a mountain on one side and a mountain of other. And they have all their armies lined up and there's a valley in between them. And this big guy, this giant, comes out and begins to taunt the armies. And the thing about Goliath is he's a giant. The Bible says that he was almost 10 feet tall, 9 foot, 9 inches tall thereabouts. His spear alone weighed 15 pounds. 
And his armor weighed 125 pounds. His armor probably weighed more than David. And David comes to the camp. He's sent by his father to bring food to his brothers. And, and he, he, he sees this Philistine taunting the armies of the, of the Lord. And he's like, why will nobody go and fight them? He's wondering, why is nothing going on? Why are you letting him taunt God and taunt the armies and nobody's standing up against him? And the armies of, the, of Israel are terrified of this guy. And basically what Goliath is saying is send one man out and just him and I will fight. And if I win, then... You know, that's the end of the battle. If you win, that's the end of the battle. And whoever wins this one-on-one fight, that's the winner of the entire battle. And David's like, why will no one go out there? And they're all scared. Probably rightfully so. So David says, goes up to Saul and he said, hey, let no man's heart fail because of him. I'll go and fight him. And Saul, the first thing that he sees, and the first thing that, that most of us saw is, yeah, you're a little bit underqualified. You know, you're, you're not very big. You're not super strong. You're not like these men of the army. You don't have any experience fighting. Maybe this job isn't for you. And David says, listen, I've gone through some stuff. And God was with me every time. See, David begins to talk about these things that he's gone through. He's fought lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And he says this, though. He says, the Lord has delivered me from the paws of the lions. The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the bear. He recognized where his strength came from. The one thing about David is he knows where his strength comes from. He knew it wasn't because he was super strong or he was powerful. It was because God was with him that he was able to defeat these things. And he says, you know what? If God was with me to fight a bear, if God was with me to fight this lion, then God will be with me to fight this Philistine. And David was convinced. You know, you don't come up to the king of Israel and say, I'm going to go do this if you're not convinced that you can handle it. David was convinced that God would be with him and that God would deliver him no matter what. But the truth is, and I'm glad that David did what he did and he was able to do what he was called to do and he stood up there. But I can't but help but think that, especially as the king, this is probably a little irresponsible to send a 15-year-old out. Anybody think that? A little irresponsible, don't you think? I mean, I don't think I would send my daughter out to protect the family. One thing, it's my job. One thing is the, 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 arm, the soldiers in his army's job, but they weren't doing their job. But then I begin to think, well, I bet people think it's also irresponsible to sell everything you have and go overseas on a missionary trip. People probably think that's irresponsible. And I know people thought that what I'm doing is irresponsible. People still probably do. People in my family, when I said, you know what, I'm giving up my career in, in the IT field to become a pastor, they thought that was pretty irresponsible. I bet people think it's irresponsible that we're going to go try to rent a building where the rent is right about what we bring in right now. But I tell you what, with God, the things that seem irresponsible can be accomplished. When God is with you, if we'll look to God, those things that seem impossible and irresponsible can be accomplished with God on your side. And that's the attitude that David had, and that's the attitude that we should have. So the, be- the battle gets ready to begin. In 1 Samuel 17, 45-47, it says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, 
But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God of Israel. And then all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. You see, David didn't just talk a good game. He didn't just... Is that you? Hmm. Is that me? I was going to give, give Monique a hard time for her phone going off, but then... Oh, wasn't me. Mine's uh, turned off. We're going to get two pizzas out of this service. If your phone goes off in service, you buy pizza for the congregation. Better now than later when we're growing. It'd be, it's going to get expensive at some point. <laughs> but David walked the walk. He didn't, just, he didn't just say, I trust God, but all of his actions showed something different. Have you seen people that talk a good game, but then when you take a, a look at their life, the fruit just doesn't match up? That's not what David was doing here. He's like, you know what? I said I'd do it, and I'm going to go out there and face this Philistine because faith in God requires action. It's like the man who was walking back and forth across a tight wire with a wheelbarrow full of stuff. He would fill a wheelbarrow, and he'd walk back and forth across Niagara Falls on a tight wire, back and forth, just amazing the crowds. And he gets back one time, and he, he looks at the crowd, and he sees this boy in the crowd, and he says, do you believe that I could walk across this tightrope with a man in my wheelbarrow? And the boy's like, I do, I believe that you, I've seen what you're doing, I believe that you could do it. And he says, all right, get in the wheelbarrow. How many know his, his, his belief changed real quick when it was him getting in the wheelbarrow? I'll tell you what, David's getting in a wheelbarrow right now, but he's going to continue to trust the Lord. Faith requires action. Just saying it is one thing, but actually stepping out and doing it is a whole different thing. And what helped David do that is he understood that the weapons of the enemy mean nothing if the Lord is on your side. We all know that, that David first was offered Saul's armor and his weapons, and it just he said, I've not tested these. It won't fit. I actually remember when I was growing up seeing a little cartoon of David and Goliath, and Saul handed him in his army, and you know, in the cartoon, David's a really young kid, and like, it just swallows him up. He can't even like, fit in it perfectly. It's like when, you're, when your little boy tries to put on your shoe. It just doesn't fit right. And he says, you know what? These aren't tested. I'm not going to use them. I'm going to go with what I know. And I fought him off with, with, with sling and stone. That's what I fought. I've protected my sheep my entire life with a sling and a stone. So he heads into the battle with that. What I find interesting is, is he doesn't say, you come with a sword and spear and a javelin, but I come with you with this smooth stone that I've, I'm so experienced and trusted in and I can do anything with. He doesn't mention his weapon. He says, I'm, I'm here with the Lord. David wasn't concerned. He could sling a stone at him. He could stare at him really hard. Something was going to make this giant go down. <laughs> Because God was with him. And that's where his trust is. And I want you to know that as Christians today, the same is for us. Romans 8.31 says, And what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In Isaiah 54.17 it says, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall rout every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. No weapon formed against us shall succeed. You know, I wonder if Goliath and all his, 
his gloating and his defiling the name of the Lord. I wonder if he, if he knew that God was real, if he knew what he was dealing with, if he would have backed off a little bit. And then he sees this kid. I mean, can you, I mean, Goliath's like, really? You guys are going to send them out? Probably, everybody go home. I don't, you don't even need to watch. It's a done deal. But as we know, David is victorious. He takes a smooth stone, slings it at his head, knocks him out, and then he walks over there and, and the, you know, the things you don't see in the children's story is he picks up Goliath's own sword and he cuts his head off. He was victorious because the Lord was with him. And all the, all through it, he gives glory to the Lord. He says, all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battles of the Lord's, and he will give you into, you know, I find it interesting, David didn't say into my hand. He said into our hand, the armies of the Lord, because God was with him. David's heart at this point is, is impeccable. He trusts the Lord wholeheartedly. So then, if you know anything about the story of David, he's anointed king, he takes care of this, and anyway, he, started, he becomes a commander in Saul's army and, and he does a lot of amazing things. He wins tons of battle because God is with him. But Saul, at some point, has figured out that David is the next king. And he doesn't like that David is getting all this praise. That people are saying that Saul has killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Saul is getting a little jealous that David's thought of higher than he is. So then Saul begins to try to kill David at every opportunity. And eventually David is, is driven to hide in the, in the fields and he runs to other lands and he's basically running from Saul. Now can you imagine being anointed the king then getting sent back out into the field? And then you get drawn back in. Now you're starting to get involved in the armies. And I wonder if David thought, maybe I'm getting closer. But now the current king is trying to kill him. I'd be like, man, I'm not so sure about this anointed thing. Next couple decades, Saul's trying to kill David at every chance that he gets. Actually, at this point, I'd I'd have been starting to question, maybe that wasn't real. Maybe Samuel got it wrong. So then as David's out in, the, out in the wilderness, he's hiding from Saul, he, we run into this situation. 1 Samuel 26, 6-11 says, And David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Jacob's brother, Abishai the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? See, this is, I always forget how hard it is to pronounce names when I decide to preach out of the Old Testament. And David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with a spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into the hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So now David is being chased by Saul all over the place. And he get, we get to a point in his life, and, I'll, and it's actually the second time that, that this happens, that basically David could have killed Saul. And I'll read the first one here in a moment. But David sneaks down into the encampment. All of Saul's soldiers are asleep around him, and he's with his, with his men, and they, they could have killed him. 
Now, I don't know if I would have been as wise as David in the same situation. Because I'm sure his men didn't think this was a wise decision to let Saul go. But David has so much respect for the Lord, he recognizes that Saul was still the king of Israel, that Saul was still anointed by God. And he says, do not destroy him, because who can raise his hand against the Lord anointed and be guiltless? He's like, who can kill Saul, the king of Israel, an anointed one of God, and be guiltless? He said, I would be guilty if we did that. You would be guilty if we did this. So he says, you know what? He continues to put his trust in the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives, the Lord will either strike him or his day will come or he will go down to battle and perish. He's like, I'm going to trust God to take care of this and not try to take matters into his own hands. See, David was a godly man and he intended to live holy. The law says, thou shalt not kill. You know, it's one thing in battle to defend yourself or to kill someone in battle as they went to war and it's one thing to defend yourself. But to just kill an unmarmed man while he was sleeping, that's flat out murder. And that wasn't allowed. And, and, and David was going to live a holy life. And truthfully, even cursing your leaders back then, cursing the king of Israel, was in the same category as blaspheming the Lord. It's a pretty a heavy offense. But David chooses to honor God and not take matters into his own hands. And like I said, this is not even the first time. There was one time that... that uh, David was hiding in the back of a cave and Saul had left his armies to go relieve himself. And back then, uh, Saul figured he was pretty safe. He figured his spies were keeping an eye on it. His guards were keeping an, art, an eye on things. And you couldn't just go to the bathroom and camp because it was unclean. So they left the camp to use the restroom and they, they had to clean up after themselves and cover it all up. And that was just part of, of being a clean Jewish man. So he left his armies and he went down into this cave to relieve himself. And David is hiding in the back of it and has the opportunity for the first time, to kill Saul. And he makes the same decision. But instead, in this case, he just reaches up and cuts a, a bit of cloth off of his robe. And even at that, David is such a, a, a godly man. He has such a heart for the Lord. Even at that point, he was upset. He was shook up that he had even reached his hand out that much to harm Saul. Because doing that would have greatly embarrassed and insulted Saul. What he did. It was the Lord's anointed that he was reaching his hand out towards. And if you know the story, he uses these opportunities to say that, that look, even though your guys are saying, your, your spies are saying that I'm trying to kill you, I've had, now I've had twice the opportunity to kill you and I can prove it. Here's the piece of bit of cloth of your robe that I cut off and here's your spear that I stole that was right by your head. And I didn't do it. So know that what they're saying is not true. And as we know, this works for a time, and then Saul gets upset again, which is why we have the second time, and it works for a bit. He says, please forgive me, and then he goes back to trying to kill him in a little bit. But this is the heart of David, that he wants to honor God in all that he does, even in a time when, when I mean, you've got to figure, he's like, I'm the next king, I could really speed things up. You see, Abraham had the same problem. When Abraham was promised to be the father of many nations, and and his wife wasn't conceiving. He's like, you know what, maybe I'll give God a hand. And he, he went into his servant to try to have uh, a son. And we know how that worked out. You see, we don't need to give God a hand. God will take care of his promises well on his own. And I've got to pick it up. 
2 Samuel 1, 11 through 16 says, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they were mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So now Saul, Saul dies. And what happens in this story is, is Saul gets wounded in battle, and, he's, and uh, this young man here finds him laying, laying, laying on a spear. He's, he's dying. And he says, you know, take my life. I want you to do it. I don't want these, these Israelites to do it. These other, or the, the people that are fighting me to do it. The Philistines, I believe. So this young man kills him. Kills Saul. In some ways, I feel bad for the guy. He's kind of set up. The king told him to kill him. <laughs> but nonetheless, he raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. So then he goes and tells David. And I find it interesting because Saul has been trying to kill him for probably going on two decades at this point. And it says he still wept for the loss of the Lord's anointed. I mean, what kind of a heart of a man who would still weep for someone? And he wept for the people of Israel because their king had been taken. He wept for Jonathan, who was Saul's son, who was actually a very, very close friend to David. But he wept for Saul. And I, that confuses me, I'll be honest. Because I don't know if I would have the same mindset if I found out the man that's been trying to kill me for years has just passed away, I'd be, thank God. But he, he mourns. The, the, the heart that we find in David is an amazing one to see. And the truth is that we're to live with this same attitude inside of ourselves, even if we don't like or agree with our leaders. In 1 Timothy 2.1 it says, First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then it goes on to say, especially for kings and leaders. We're supposed to pray for our leaders. I'll be honest with you, that's a little tougher for me now in this season with our current leadership than it has been in the past. But the truth is that even if we don't agree with our leaders, that we're supposed to pray for them. And that's the attitude that David had. I guarantee you he didn't agree with Saul trying to kill him, but he still prayed for the leader of Israel. He still mourned when he died. And then even more so, he held the man accountable that killed him. This man killed the king of Israel, one of God's anointed. And I imagine, this is, and I, this is not mentioned in the Bible, but this is what I, I imagine is going on to this guy's head. He takes care of David's problem, and he probably thought that David was going to take care of him. You know, this king that's been giving you heart, I took care of him for you. And he got a totally different story. Because he had killed one of the Lord's anointed. And David said, you with your own mouth have admitted this, and now you're going to be held accountable. You know, he obviously didn't know of the decisions that David had already made in his life. He wasn't one of David's men that knew that David had already let Saul walk away twice when he had the opportunity to kill him. I bet you if he'd have known that, maybe his attitude would have been different. He wouldn't have been running to tell David of this great thing he did. Now, if we fast forward in David's life a little bit longer... A little bit farther forward, we find in 2 Samuel 6, 16-22, this story, and most of you have probably heard this one as well. It says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And that wasn't because he was a bad dancer. 
And they brought in they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offering burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Actually, this idea here that David is, is, is doing the offerings, the peace offerings, David wasn't a priest. But as the king of Israel, he was operating in the role of, of, of a priest. And really, it's this perfect picture of Jesus, who was our king and priest. This is a, a shadow of Jesus, of what's to come in Jesus, who was our king and our priest, in the order of Melchizedek, who was the king and the priest and offered sacrifices to the Lord. But when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one, and then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. You see, what's happening here is, is David is acting very unkingly. He's acting very unlike the men of, of Israel at the time. He's, he's not being cool and abased. He's not being you know, level-headed, but he's out there dancing for the Lord. And the Bible says that he's in a linen ephod, which is basically just a light linen robe that he's out there dancing with. And that's, that's where McCall gets her idea that she's saying that, uh, uh, that you exposed yourself to these women that you're dancing with. Because basically she's saying you're out there dancing in this linen ephod, this, this basically underwear. You're out there dancing in front of your, of your servants, making a fool of yourself. You know, kings shouldn't be dancing and leaping and praising like that. And they shouldn't be dressed like that. And you're doing it in front of your servants. And... The truth is that she's making a false claim because if you read in First Chronicles, it says that underneath the linen ephod, he was actually wearing royal robes. He was fully dressed. He was fully clothed. But she's casting accusations at him because she's upset. First off, she's probably concerned with her reputation. What will the people think of me if my husband's out there acting a fool like that? Worried about her reputation? Worried about his reputation? And he says, what are, you, you know, what are you so concerned about? I, will, I am celebrating the Lord right now. I am celebrating the Lord and I will, I will be even more foolish than this. I will be even more contemptible than this to worship the Lord. You know, and it's funny, we look at these stories and it's so easy for us to go, man, she doesn't even know what she's talking about. She's thinking crazy. Because we have this... This 2020 hindsight into the Bible where we can see the actual outcomes. We can see what's going on. We can see that David was actually justified in worshiping the Lord. But the truth is, if we take a step back and look at our own lives sometimes, how, how hard was it before that first time you raised your hands to worship the Lord? When you were thinking the same thing. What if somebody thinks I'm foolish? What if, I mean, we feel like sometimes that if we, if we do a little more than this while we're praising and worshiping God, Lord, we love you, praise you. If we do any more than that, then like the service is going to come to a screeching halt. And everyone, like, you're like, 
All right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, and everyone's just going to stir and stare at you as soon as you raise your hands up. You guys laugh, but that's what we think in our head. I remember the first time that I, I, I wanted to do it, because I, I knew I wanted to worship God, but man, it's, you're so self-conscious, you're so worried. Probably a bit how she felt. Everyone's going to point and stare at us. But the truth is, David had a heart to worship God no matter what. He was going to give his all to God. He was going to worship no matter what, no matter how he looked. And that's the same attitude that we should have in our hearts as well. But now we start to get into David's life when, when you're going to see some parts that you maybe shouldn't imitate. And we're going to take a look and we begin to recognize that David is not some super saint that's super holy that never makes a mistake, but he was a real man that had real problems. In 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 5, it says, In the spring of the year, that's the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. Here's our first problem. David says, it says, in the time of the year, the time when who goes out to battle? The kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But where did David remain? It says, David remained in Jerusalem. Now this is the time when kings go out to battle, but David stayed at home. First David, problem David runs into is he's, he's in a place that he shouldn't have been. As we continue to read the story, it says, Then it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness, and then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So first off, we find that David is not perfect. He's a man like us who makes mistakes. And this is the first major one recorded in the Bible. You know, this is one of the main reasons that when you read the Bible that one of the, uh, they, they call it textual criticism, when they look at a, a book to find out if it's true or if it's just stories, when they record the bad stuff, it's much more likely that it's true because if you're writing a fiction, fictionary story, you're always going to record the good stuff. If it was untrue stuff, I mean, if I was David writing this book, and I, I don't think I'd be telling everybody all my flaws. And you see it in the New Testament as well. You see all the apostles' falls and flaws and their failures and where they struggled. And textual, and textual criticism says that this is a, a mark towards its faithfulness, towards its truthfulness, because if it was all stories, they would have cut out the bad parts. But here we find David getting ready to mess up big time. And his first problem was is that he's not where he's supposed to be. This all could have been avoided if he would have just been where he was supposed to be. You know, how many times have we gotten ourselves in trouble because we're where we weren't supposed to be? Maybe you should have been studying or you should have been working, but instead you're surfing the internet and running the stuff that you're not supposed to be seeing. Or maybe you should have gone to Bible study or, or you should have gone to church, but instead you stayed at home and got caught up in an appropriate movie or got caught up doing something that you weren't supposed to. You know, if you were where you were supposed to be, half the time the problems you run into wouldn't happen. But now he's where he's not supposed to be and he, he gets himself into trouble and he gets up, he's walking on the roof and he sees 
this woman bathing on the roof. And, and like most people, she's probably not wearing any clothes as she's bathing, so David's got a problem. He sees this beautiful woman, instead of turning away, instead of walking away, he busts out the binoculars. Sends out his people to find out where she is, who she is. So that's already bad enough. Now he's pursuing her. But then on top of that, he says, all right, now I know who she is. And the, the interesting thing is, is this Uriah the Hittite? This is one of David's mighty men. This is one of his men. This is one of his guys. And he sends after her. And, he's, and he's sleep, he lays with her. He sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. It's just, he has all these opportunities to turn away, but he keeps failing. And I look at this and you're like, man, this doesn't look like the actions of a man after God's own heart. And the story continues to go on. In 2 Samuel 11, 14 through 15, now he's, he's gotten Bathsheba pregnant. Now he's got to deal with this problem. So instead of manning up and dealing with it, he goes on and, and murders Uriah, the husband. It doesn't start there. He actually, he actually brings Uriah in from the battlefield. He figures if I bring him in, he'll sleep with his wife and everybody will think that, that he got his wife pregnant and I'll be in the clear. So Uriah comes in and, and uh, he, David says, all right, tell me how things are going. Okay, go stay at your house and we'll send you back out later. Well, then he find out, then David finds out that Uriah actually didn't go to his house. He slept on the doors of, the, of, uh, of David's house, basically. And in 2 Samuel 11.11, Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall then I go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah is being a better... David should have been out in the tents with these guys. Instead, he's staying at home. And because Uriah is a good man, he's a godly man, David's plan kind of falls through. So he cooks up another one. Well, if that's not going to work, it says in 2 Samuel 11, 14 through 15, in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Can you imagine? David sends this letter that says, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fight and then draw back from him that he may struck down and die. Basically, it's a hit. David sends out a hit on Uriah and makes Uriah deliver it himself. That's pretty brazen. That's pretty brazen. He, he has Uriah deliver the letter himself. So then, so, so what happens, Joab does it. He sends him to the front of the battle and Joab backs off and Uriah dies. You see, David's sin with Bathsheba was, was a, a sin of passion. It was in the moment. He got caught up in the moment. But this one is flat out premeditated murder. He thought this one through. And I look at it and once again I'm like, this doesn't seem like the actions of a man after God's own heart. But the truth is that our actions don't define who we are. But it's our attitude, it's the fact that we've received Jesus Christ and that we've been made brand new. That doesn't excuse these actions, obviously. And you'll find that because of this stuff, and we'll find in a moment, there's very serious consequences to these actions. But God still loved them despite of these things. And God still loves you in spite of anything that you've ever done. You cannot do anything bad enough that God would not love you anymore. Because even after all this, David eventually gets back up. 
In 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 13, it says, Nathan said to Daniel, you are the man. And let me give you a little backstory here. Basically, Nathan the prophet comes up to David and he says, let me tell you a little story. And it goes something like this. And in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 6, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him with his children. He used to, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd or prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And it said, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan says, You're the man. Thus says the Lord, in verse 7, Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. He says, if this were too little, I've given you all this, but if this were too little, I would have, I would have doubled it. I would have given you this much more. And he says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. David recognized at this point that he had messed up. And he, says, and he, he fesses up and says, I have sinned before the Lord. And the Lord forgives him. But there is a difference between forgiveness and consequences that you might face for your Lord. There's a, there's a difference between punishment and consequences. You see, David had to face the consequences of his sin, even though he was forgiven, even though he wouldn't die for these sins that the law clearly demanded death. There was no, there was no sacrifice for adultery. There was no sacrifice for murder. That wasn't one you could go before the altar and have your sins forgiven. We actually find that in the Psalms when he's writing, he actually says this. Psalms 51 was, was written as a response to what happened after he was confronted by Nathan because of Bathsheba. And in Psalms 51, 9 through 12, he wrote this. He says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and behold me with a willing spirit. We begin to see into the heart of David. Here we, we see, I have sinned against the Lord. And, and in my head when I read this, he just says it with a straight face. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's like, oh, you're cool. But really, we see into the heart of David that he's struggling with this. He realizes that he messed up. And he says, Lord, cleanse me, forgive me. In Psalms 51.16, a few verses later in that psalm, it says, For you will not, de not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it to you. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. 
David recognized that what he did, there was no sacrifice. There was nothing that he could do. It, he relied strictly on the grace of God. But he did cry out to God. He, he recognized that he needed God. And the truth is that, that David pays the consequences for his sins. We find out later where it says here that I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. It even says here, it says, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. This comes to pass. Absalom, David's son, uh, conspires against him and, and basically drives David out of the city and sets up a tent on the rooftop and sleeps with all of David's wives. His son does that. But that's the, the consequence of sin. David was forgiven, but there was still a consequence for his actions. But nonetheless, we still see the character of David when he recognized that he has failed. He reaches back out to God. Before I get into to this verse, David messes up again. Sometime later, he's, he's leading the armies, he's fighting the Philistines, he's raising up a great army, and, and he calls a census to count up his people. And there's been censuses in the Bible before. Censuses aren't, aren't uh, illegal. There was actually provision for it in the law to count the people. But the problem was, is David wasn't doing the normal yearly census he was counting up because he wanted to see how tough he was. He wanted to see how strong he was. This was his pride was acting up. He wanted to see what he had accomplished. And the truth is, even his officers are like, why are you delighting in such a thing? This is crazy. But at any rate, at, at the end of this, he does it anyway, and he angers the Lord. And I want you to know that when we look at these stories in the Old Testament, we see that God's anger is, is stoked, and he, and he lashes out against the people You've got to recognize, too, that in this time, they, haven't, they don't have Jesus yet. I want you to know that in today's day, the covenant that we have, we don't have to worry about God lashing out against us because all of his wrath for the sins that we've already done, that we've committed, has already been expressed in his Son. Jesus satisfied that wrath, and it was paid in his Son. But at this point, the, the justice of God, the righteousness of God had to be fulfilled. That the, God is a just God and when sin happens, a payment was re- required. And I thank God for us, Jesus has paid that payment for us, but back then the payment was still had to be paid. That's why they gave blood sacrifices to make the payment through, through that. But in this case, a plague is sent. Because after David does this, the prophet comes to him and says, all right, you've greatly sinned. You know, Bathsheba and Uriah, David says, I have sinned. But when this happens, David says, I have greatly sinned. His pride was, and whatever was going on here was a greater sin. And you can read the stuff that I'm talking about a little bit before these verses in the beginning of 24, I believe. Uh, Samuel 2, chapter 24. But basically, God says, you get three choices. You can either have Three years of famine, you can have three months of, of a defeat in battle, or you can have three days of the sword of the Lord, which would be pestilence in the land. And pestilence is just a, a ridiculous disease. The bubonic plague would have been considered pestilence. And David says, you know what, I would rather be in the hands of God who will show greater mercy than the hands of man. So he chose the three days of pestilence. And 70,000 people died because of this sin. The consequence was 70,000 people. And we find that, that David is forgiven. He recognized that he's sinned. But there's still consequences for those actions. 
Which is why, as believers, we should not sin. Because even though we're forgiven, and thank God that we are, God will still love us. There's still consequences for our sins. If you murder somebody, God will forgive you if you turn to Him and ask for forgiveness. But you're still probably going to jail. There's consequences which are different than punishment. So anyway, after all this happened, to end this plague, to end the three days of plague, the prophet tells him to go and, and build a, uh, an altar to the Lord and sacrifice to it. So in 2 Samuel 24, 21-24, it says, And Aaronah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. And then Abinah said to David, Let my lord, the king, take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aronah, Arona something. Do you know how to pronounce that? Arona? Arona? Gives to the king. And Arona said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arona, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. You see, David sinned, and it cost the lives of thousands. And now he had to go give an offering to God. And this guy that he's going to buy the threshing floor from and all the materials says, you know what, I'm just going to give it to you. But David says, you know what, I'm not going to give to my God something that costs me nothing. He wanted to sacrifice for God. He wanted to give something to God. God had already given so much to him. He didn't want it to be something flippantly. You know, it's like when when we give our tithes and our offerings, it costs us something. If you're just giving a little bit off the top of your surplus and you're not honoring God the way you should, that's not the same as something that might cost you something. It's like, do you remember the woman who gave the, the, the penny to God? And Jesus said, she's given more than everybody here. Because that penny was everything that she had. How many years has given God everything that you've had? I haven't. And I don't believe God requires that of you. But I know I haven't given to that extent. She sacrificed everything. And David says, I don't want you to give this to me so I can offer it to God like I've done something. He's like, no, this, I don't want to give God anything that doesn't cost me something. You know, this is the heart of David that we need to imitate. This is the, the heart, this is, this is the heart of a man after God's own heart. You know, David was never allowed to build the, the house. The, the scripture we used for the offering this morning it was when David was gathering resources to build the temple. But, but God said, basically, for all the, the, the war in David's life and all the things that he'd done, God said, you know, I'm not going to let you build my temple. But this, this plot of land that David bought, this is actually where the temple was built. And David was allowed to gather the resources so his son could build it. The last scripture we're going to look at today is is the scripture that actually refers to David as a man after God's own heart. In 1 Samuel 13, 13 through 14, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. 
but know your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. This is referring to David. Saul messed up, wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And Samuel says, you blew it. Now I'm going to go after and get someone who's after who the Lord said. He sought out a man after his own heart, who is David. As we just looked at, David has some really high points in his life, and he has some really low points in his life. But he was still considered a man after God's own heart. Because this was never because of David's actions, but it was because of his heart. It was the attitude that he had. He always got back up. He always turned back towards God. And for us to have this same heart attitude is to have a heart after God's own heart. You know, this, this scripture right here is before every other one we've written. This scripture was, was said, Samuel said this when David was still a child, before he had done all those terrible things in his life. I want you to know that God wasn't surprised by the things David did. God wasn't like, this is a man after my own heart, and then partway through is going, who? maybe he wasn't. God knew what was going to happen. Even despite knowing what David would do, he still called him a man after his own heart. And truthfully, Jesus comes through the lineage of David. In 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 16, it says, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people in Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you before. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your, your throne shall be established forever. This is a promise that David made to God. And we find out that it was established forever eventually in Jesus, who is a lineage of David. And his kingdom is established forever. All because this man that we looked at, who's not so different than you or I, always looked back towards God. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go ahead and bow our heads.